Welcome to the Central Baptist Victoria podcast. Here's today's message. My mom was a Newfie, all right, Newfoundland. And uh, yeah, some Newfies up in here, some East Coasters. I was born in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and when we were growing up, all our Newfie friends would come over. My parents were like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna understand them. Oh, I see it right, he's Dartmouth. They'd be pounding your flounder in Easter Sherby. And they're like going off, and I'm like, I don't know what they're saying. My dad's like, just laugh along. <laughs> okay, cool, awesome, yeah, it's great. But I grew up in a place called Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia. Great place, unfortunate name, and it was just outside of Halifax. From that point, I moved across to Winnipeg, Manitoba, the armpit of Canada. All right? And me and my family made it out here to the west coast of Canada, and that was unexpected. I uh, didn't ever intend to be in ministry, didn't think I would be, but God's plan for my life was greater than my plan for my life, and that was something, man, that I just had no idea what it could be like. I thought I had what I wanted. I was a social worker for the province of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Manitoba, with the random assault unit. I tell you, no job sounds cooler than that. You're the guy who keeps people who have been convicted of like manslaughter, assault, aggravated assault, armed robbery, robbery, and help them stay in line and get conventional supports in the community. That was my job. I loved it. And then in there, we had a Vatican-trained priest who became a social worker because he fell in love. And he's like, you would make a great priest, Chris. I said, listen, I got the same problem you do. I'm wildly in love with this girl, Mercedes, who I am married to, been with for the last 17 years, and we have four boys together. Wow. Yeah. Four sons. 11, 8, 5, and 3, so if you could pray for her, she needs it, her hands are full, you know, as if I wasn't just enough. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a wild time, but those prayers and these prayers that you're giving to Quanos and giving to others, like, this is actually where the church is needed the most. It's, it's not just in the active function of the church in which the power of the church lies, because if we do all of this and all of camp and all the things we do as church, but the spirit of God does not show up to transform lives and point people to Jesus, then all is lost and all is pointless. And so the best thing we can do as the church in Canada, and trust me, my heart is for the church in Canada, the best thing we can do is be a church that is on our knees regularly pleading and interceding for God to move amongst his churches so that the spirit of God will live on in the people and lives and transform them for now and for forever. Amen? That is the hope we hold on to. Now that's not just tied in, in rubbish, in ideas that we've made up. That is tied and secured in the word of God that is the inerrant truth that he has given to us so that we would know him, know how to worship with him, know how to thrive in our lives, know how we're created to be in relationship with him and others. This is truth. And some of us don't hold it as that in our lives, even in the church. And I wanted to start there as the foundation of which we're working from today to say there is a greater authority that we put ourselves under and one that we need to pray to and ask to intercede and to work through us and through all the efforts so real change can happen. I tell you, when I was driving here today, coming through Victoria, I was praying for every church I saw along the way. Why? Because I don't just want like Village Church in the Lower Mainland across Canada to thrive. I don't just want Central Baptist to thrive. I want the church to thrive so that more people come to know Jesus. And here's the wild part. Canada, just this last year, crossed the 40 million mark. One million people in 2022, mostly by immigration, because the boomers are retiring, we need more people to work, and more people are coming in, but that is opportunity for the church of Jesus to expand and to grow, and we should believe that the Spirit of God wants to move, that Jesus wants to and is still building his church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And so that's the hope we have, and that's what we hold on to. I actually think I even prayed for a Mormon church by mistake, and I was like, oh, I take those back. And I was like, uh, 
Maybe I don't take them back. Maybe I got to change them, you know? Like, Jesus thrived there too. So we're going to spend some time in 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there in chapter 2. And as you get there, let me just give you a little context to catch you up. The church in Corinth is in a place where if you read the first chapter, you see it clearly. There's a lot of division in the church. There's a lot of division going on in the church around who should we listen to? Who is the one that we should ascribe our identity to? What is the person and the teacher and the idea that is best? And Paul comes into this setting, sends them a letter to bring some clarity in what they're going through to say it doesn't matter who you follow as a religious teacher so long as it's all pointing to Jesus. You see, the point of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus actually did do something real. He accomplished something on your behalf that you could not, that was inspired by the great love of God. God. When we talk about God's love and loving kids onto Jesus and things that we want to see in Camp Kwanos and here in Central Baptist and at every church across Canada, the hope is that our, like, the love that they experience isn't just a love that we experience just as humans in other things. Like, we all love things, don't we? Like, I clearly love food, all right? I can't get over it. I love it. I'm like a chubbier Chris Pratt, you know? It's like uh, handsome, but like, yeah, he's a little thick, you know? It's like, There are things we love. I love peanut butter sandwiches. You love your favorite sports team. You love these things. But God's love is something much different. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I know propitiation sounds like a big word, but if you can order a caramel macchiato from Starbucks, (laughs) you can learn the word propitiation. Is this full atoning sacrifice on your behalf? That is how the love of God was displayed for you. And so Paul comes and brings a very clear message of what it's all actually about. And that foundation matters. And when I came to you, chapter two, verse one, and, when, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Pause. Why is that so important? Why is that the, the, the real truth that you need to hold on to? Because the foundation of where you start really matters. What we're not trying to do at Camp Quanos and all of our churches here is we're not trying to win people unto religion. We're not trying to just win them into the church and into the function and the life of the church, no matter how good that might be for them. Because that right there is like one of the fallacies that so many people have fallen into, where they think they will earn God's favor by doing things for God. The heart and the truth of the gospel is that God did something for you, and that needs to be the point. And when you focus your eyes on Christ and you focus your hearts on Christ and you put everything into that basket of I'm going to pursue him, I'm going to know him, I'm going to be led by him, I'm going to worship him, I'm going to turn away from the idols and the other things I want in my life and I'm going to pursue Jesus, that's when real life change happens. That's when real transformation happens. Now, before I was a probation officer, I was a mall cop. Like Paul Blart, like it was fantastic. Like, it's, it's just as good as you think it is, all right? I just, I just did, I didn't have a segue. That was the only thing I was missing. Like, we tried to figure it out, it wasn't in the budget. But this mall cop action, it was at a mall that was connected to a YMCA. And me and my friends, we all did different types of mixed martial arts, and so we thought it'd be really fun to find a space where we could just spar with each other. And so we talked to this YMCA, and we're like, hey, after hours, you have all these mats that aren't being used. Can we borrow those? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. So we'd bring a trolley and pick it up, and we'd go up to this huge ventilation space, which was literally like half this room of just empty space, and we would lay the mats out. And isn't it interesting how things sometimes start small but get really, really big and stupid after a while? 
Like what started off as us first just being like, oh, we're just gonna like spar a little bit, train, help each other out, be healthy. Well, that started turning into like, like kind of really aggressive fights amongst friends. <laughs> and what was really aggressive fights amongst friends then turned into like full out like set up fights between people. And then what turned into set up fights between people turned into like music coming in where you're coming into like the Rocky theme, you know? It's the eye of the tiger, it's the thrill of the fight. And you come in onto the mats and here you are, ready to rock with this person, but it didn't even end there. Word got out in the mall, so now mall staff are coming, and they're watching after hours. Now we've got like a crowd of people as we come in. Next thing I know, they're laying bets down. Listen, this isn't being recorded, is it? I think this is a lot of this is illegal. So while this happened, part of the, uh, the, the thing you go through to become a probation officer is a background check. Not just like a criminal record check, but a background check. And one of the things they asked me is, are you involved in any criminal activity? And at this point, I'm like, I know the first rule of Fight Club, I shouldn't tell you. <laughs> All right? But the second thing is, I don't know, you tell me. And so I explained what was going on. He said, yeah, you need to stop that. <laughs> and so something I wanted motivated me to stop something I was doing so that I could get what I wanted. That's religion. Now fast forward years later, my dad, he passed away at 52 years old from a brain aneurysm. Um, when he passed away, he had a family ring that was passed down through generations. And he, that ring, my mom took that and gave it to my younger brother, but then she took family gold and she made three other rings so that they could be passed on to the other men in our family. And those rings then were given to us. And, th and that ring does something different when I look at it. It reminds me of actually like what family I'm part of. What are some of the things that I'm not, I'm not expected to do, but things that I actually am, like an identity piece, where relationship then fuels how I function and how I live. That's different, isn't it? That's a whole lot more like the gospel of Jesus than me just doing things I think I need to do and changing my behavior for the sake of getting what I think I want. The problem is a lot of us in our churches, we, we get caught up in that kind of lifestyle because it's easier to articulate. It's a little bit more tangible. How am I doing against this sin in my life? Am I, am I locking it down? How am I doing against this thing? Oh, but then when I screw up in that sin, well, now I feel so far from God. Well, God's love for you didn't change. He knows all the things you're going to do. He knows all the things you've done in the past, and he still loves you at your worst. He doesn't want to keep you there. Don't get it wrong, but his love for you doesn't change. His grace for you in your life doesn't change. So when we build all of our relationship with Jesus on just how we can hold it together, we're building it not on the foundation of Christ, but on other things. And then we get caught in like, well, is that sin? I don't know if that's sin enough. Like, I have enough young adults in my life. Like, we recently did a Q&A with our church, and all these questions got texted in. And there are ridiculous loopholes people are looking for. One of them is like, hey, is it sin if I sell pictures of my feet to put me through college? They didn't teach me that in seminary. <laughs> I don't know. Let's work through it. We're not going to do that here. If you have that question, talk to me after. I'm sure not a lot of you are wondering. <laughs> but if you don't keep it about Jesus being the center thing, where you start in the foundation, it matters for your life, for your faith. If it's about anything else, it will falter. It will not be true to the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ. And these kids who are coming to camp need that. But let's continue in the passage. And I was with you in weakness 
and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In this passage, what we've just read, we see on full display who God actually is. We see the person and the work of Jesus displayed. We see the power and intercession of the spirit displayed. And we see the love and presence of God displayed, this perfect trinity. Now this is important for us to understand at any walk of our life because some of us are really good at like a few parts of the trinity where we understand God and we understand Jesus but maybe we don't operate in the spirit much. Us Baptists are great at that. I was raised in a Baptist church. It felt like I was sinning when I started hanging out with charismatics. You know? People who like should have bought a bus, didn't buy a bus. Like, sorry, that was a cheap joke. But these guys are my friends. And it's amazing when you see God working in one. Now, how do we understand that? Because there's something that God does in our lives to help us be part of what he's doing through that relationship that starts with Jesus, but is connected to him in the Trinity. You see, the Trinity, I, I, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around, isn't it? And there's all these things that we try and like use. Like I have four kids, right? So I'm trying to teach them about the Trinity. I'm like, well, it's kind of like an apple, but not really. With the skin and the core and the seed, it's kind of, okay. Well, it's kind of like ice, but not really. And it's really hard to describe how these three distinct persons are actually fully one, one God, three persons, not members of a club, but persons in the Trinity. How do we understand that? And then a doctor showed me this. And he said, that oftentimes what we do is we try and figure out the picture of the Trinity in a way that doesn't make sense to us because when we say, oh, three in one, three distinct but one, we try and put that in like our minds of how we can actually see things, right? If I had a table right here in the middle of the stage and I wanted to put something where that table was, like a chair, I'd have to move that table to put that chair there. And so we get this kind of Venn diagram thing where they're kind of together but they're not really. But this doctor and theologian said, what if instead of using physical understanding for the Trinity, instead you brought it into an audible space? This is what I mean. When we hear a note on the piano, if you were to close your eyes and not picture anything, but listen to the space that it takes up as you hear it, we hear something in the audible space and we can almost see that it's taking up the room there. Now you add a second piece. And these two notes take up the same audible space that you have in your heart and your mind. And now a third. And you have this beautiful picture. Three distinct notes taking up the same space. And I think this is the best picture of the Trinity that I've ever heard. And from that, you just see music come to life. I didn't do that for applause, I did it to prove a point, but thank you. There's something in how God has designed himself 
like how he lives, not how he designed himself, how, how, he, how he is, just how he is. That the universe and everything started in relationship and he invites us through the work of Jesus to be part of that relationship. He, he invites us through the great atoning sacrifice of Christ where God saw the brokenness of humanity tear the relationship apart from him. Where sin had entered the picture in the garden and all of humanity from that point forward has been plagued with sin. You, me, we all have it. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, you may not be a Christian. You may be in this space because it's what you've done your whole life and you've built it on religion. And when we talk about these things, you, you kind of understand it because you live and you've been in it enough, but you don't really feel it. Like there's something powerful in this Trinitarian picture where now God invites us to be part of the work that he's doing. You know, when, when you play those keys on a piano and you release the strings, if you were to play one key, the surrounding strings around it start to reverberate as well. And as you play more and as you play more, the strings reverberate louder and more and more. And so it is with the church. Your relationship with Jesus, your closeness with him is going to be the very thing that gives you the fuel you need to be playing alongside Jesus and his work in the world. And then you get a front row seat to see him change lives. That's what your partnership with Camp Quanos is doing. You are changing and transforming lives. Scott said there are 4,000 kids coming to this camp this year. Wouldn't it be amazing if those 60%, 50 to 60%, those 2,000 kids who don't know Jesus leave knowing Jesus? I've been teaching there for like the last five years. I've had conversations with kids where they're like, man, I came to camp because my parents almost wanted to get rid of me or they didn't show up in something and they're carrying the weight of the world and they're just trapped and burdened and then their parents lay other things on them. Hey, go have fun, but don't listen to that God stuff. That's not for you. And yet the spirit of God inches in and moves and starts giving freedom to these kids in ways they could not have imagined because that's what's available to them. Listen to how it continues in the passage. This is verse six of chapter two. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, it's who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What is Paul doing? He's loosely quoting Isaiah 64 and 65. As he works through that, he's saying, and Israel at that time were longing for a day when everything was made right. Anybody else have that longing in their heart? Anybody else sick of their bodies failing? Like I'm finally hitting that age, things are just falling apart. Man, I sleep wrong, I limp for like three weeks. I don't stretch before I go to bed, I feel it the next day. And it's not because I have this incredible hamstring set in the back. It's like, man, these bodies, they fail us. But he's saying there's a hope beyond that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart or mind of man ever imagined. That is what is available to these kids. And Jesus, by his grace, regardless of everything that's been piled on, helps to pull them from the mire. You know, my kids, um, we've been trying to get to understand and see as much of BC as possible. It seems never ending. Like we've been here a decade now. It feels like we're just scratching the surface. It's beautiful, isn't it? Man, you see God's creation all around. And one of the things we never get over is the beaches. Like, 
because they got a lot of like marshland in Winnipeg and Manitoba, a lot of places you don't want to swim, like where those big mosquitoes are like bred from, they come out of the water, you're like, no, Lord, please. But out here, there's all these beautiful beaches. We were at a beach in Tawasin, and at this beach, like, there was a family there before us, and they dug this huge hole, like giant hole, to the point that my kids thought, this is amazing, they're jumping in it, they're getting in there, and then at one point, one of my kids is like, hey, just bury me in it, Dad. It's my second son, Calvin. I said, okay. So he gets in, and we just fill it in right up to his neck. Looked like a little coconut just sitting there on the beach. (laughs) And at first, it was so fun until I had the wise idea of thinking it'd be funny to pretend to walk away. And then all of a sudden, you see it in his little heart. Like, it's like, hey, Dad, that's funny. Hey, Dad, that's not funny. Hey, Dad, there's a lot of pressure on me. Dad, 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 don't. And like, my heart, like, I didn't mean for it to be anything but funny. And so I come down to him, like, hey, 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 hey. Like, no, don't, like, Daddy, Dad's right here. Like, don't worry. And I start, like, carving the sand out from around him because the panic was in him. The weight of everything was on. He was just trapped. And I just pulled out the sand. Hey, I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. You see, in the same way, Jesus is ready to meet with these kids and these campers and with you today where you might have this in your life where you feel the burden of sin and doubt and anxiety and worry. Like we are the most anxious, anxious generation on the history of the planet. The amount of counseling that's available, the amount of therapy that's needed, the very real mental health things that are happening in our communities. And yet Jesus comes alongside all of us and says, hey, just don't forget that I'm here. So when he says, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. Cast your burdens upon me because I'm strong enough to carry them for you. And he wants to remind these campers that what they've experienced throughout their lives, which oftentimes abandonment, abuse, like neglect, like even from loving parents, they're gonna have wounds. All us parents are screwing up our kids somehow. And there's a perfect one in Christ who wants to come along and say, hey, just let me clear that out a little bit. Let me take that anxiety from you. Let me move this fear away from you. Let me just give you this peace and this space. And he says, because there's something more that you get to look forward to in the history of the world, that at the end of all things, there is a day when every tear will be wiped from every eye, where there will be no more pain or no more suffering. There is a day when all things will be redeemed. All things will be made new. And that's a hope a lot of these kids don't know, but it's one they're gonna hear this summer. Isn't that incredible? That the real truth of the gospel of Jesus is going to be heard for many of them for the very first time. And in that, the spirit of God is gonna change lives. So let's be praying and anticipating and actually praying big, bold prayers, believing that all 2,000 of those kids who don't know him will leave to know him. Come on now. Come on now. but it has to be secured in the work of Jesus. Because one of the greatest hurdles that we all overcome is the very thing that Jesus overcame for us, and they need to know that it is a compassionate, willing, and present God. There's an interesting story in John chapter 11 where these two sisters call out to Jesus and says, hey, the one whom you love is sick. Would you return and would you heal him? Jesus doesn't return in time, and this man, Lazarus, actually dies. Like, so dead that in some versions of the Bible, it says he stinketh. You know what I'm saying? Like, he'd been in there for a while when Jesus got back. 
But Jesus, before he goes to heal Lazarus, which he's going to do to resurrect him from the dead, he actually takes a moment and sees the pain of the people around, the pain of the sisters. And in the shortest verse of the Bible, but one that just shows the heart of God so beautifully, it says that Jesus wept. He wasn't weeping just because of the outcome of Lazarus' life. He was weeping because of the pain that he was seeing in the people he loves. You see, Peter Kreeft, an incredible theologian, theologian, talks about suffering. And he says, in the same way that we see Jesus' tears on earth in the compassion of his people, that Jesus himself is the tears of God on the planet for God's compassion for his people. That Jesus is the tears of God in the way that he came to bring unity and restore relationship so that he could be close to them once again. Now, how did Jesus do this? You know, there's an interesting theological term called the double imputation of Christ. And in the double imputation, it means this. Actually, maybe a story will help. When I became a probation officer, one of the things we had to do was we had to go into court often. And we had to go and like testify for things that we've seen or breaches that we made on people or all these different pieces. So we're in there quite a bit. And so the first time I go into court, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm really nervous. And so I just start like chewing gum because I think that's gonna help. And the very first thing is the judge walks in and I stand up, she's like, get that gum out of your mouth in my courtroom. It's gone, I swallowed it. It's just gone. Because of that being my first encounter with the judge, every time I went in, I carried this like heavy burden of like, oh man, I don't know how this is gonna go. I don't know how this is gonna play out. Like I'm trying to do everything right. And then one time, um, I come into the courtroom and we have all our things and it turned out then later we found out that the court date got pushed and so the judge wasn't there and like just the relief over my mind, ooh, okay, not there, that's a good thing. I think some people are stuck in that in our lives and some of you are stuck in that where you fear the judgment of God because you don't understand the imputation of Christ where you worry about all the things you've done because you don't actually fully understand what God has done for you. Where you think because you have did something wrong or you have shame in your past or you have things that you've done that you wouldn't share with anybody in the room, not even your closest. You sit there at the 99% when you do confession and you're like, I don't know because if I tell about this thing, then they're not gonna love me or want me or know me or anything like that. And yet in the same way of heaven, God's grace and mercy is more than we could ever imagine. It's this never ending, always present, unconditional love because he accomplished it for you. It's not by our work that we're saved, but we carry that. So picture yourself in a courtroom. When I was a probation officer, we had files for people and some of them were pretty thick. But if I took a file of my life and laid out everything that I've ever done in it, I tell you, this would be a hefty file. Would yours be like that? It would be one that I would not be proud of. And if I carried that and sat in the courtroom and I feared the God who was coming in to judge me, who is the judge, and I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, and then this other man comes in and he comes in and his file's empty. That thing's completely not a sheet in there. And when we sit down, God stands there and he looks upon this moment and before he says, hey, you are now judged. This man, Jesus, this man with nothing in his file, takes my file and says, hey, I want to trade you. And you're like, what are you talking about? 
No, no, everything in your file I want for me. No, wait, what do you mean everything in my file? Like, maybe you can take 75% of my file, but some of this stuff I gotta figure out myself. I gotta pay for this myself. I gotta work for this myself. He's like, no, no, no. I want everything in your file. All of it? Everything? Yeah, I want everything in your file. So you hand him the file, and you're like, what did Jesus know? There's some things in my pockets. I haven't really been honest. Like, here's a couple things I've been hiding. Yeah, I want those too. But there's these ones that I don't even know if they're written down anywhere. Can I just tell you? Yeah, I want those too. And in this beautiful act of mercy, where you know, you know the things you've carried, you know the sin you have in you, God actually takes that and lays it upon Jesus, and Jesus takes the penalty of our sin in full. Every single thing, every single secret, Jesus takes it and takes it upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin. And he did that for you and for me, and he did that for every single camper who's coming to camp so that they would know him and trust in him and put their lives under his authority and live under him for a life they could never have imagined, a life that is literally like next level. That is the double imputation of Christ where our sin is placed upon him and his righteousness is placed upon us. So what do we need to do this summer to be sure that these kids leave with a great understanding that what is available to them, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined for what God has prepared for those who love him. Well, the very first thing is we, ourselves, How do you see this, not just for camp, but how do you see this for those of you who Central Baptist is your home church? And you're like me, where you have family who doesn't know Jesus. Where you have family that kind of denied Christ because they walked through it through the church, and for whatever reason they haven't submitted their lives to him, and you don't really know why, and you you hold on to this kind of pseudo-hope that they might love him enough, or that the prayer that they prayed like when they were 12 years old might hold them through to eternity, but their lifestyle doesn't really reflect it. Or you have friends, like I have friends in my neighborhood. I live in a little townhome complex in Langley, British Columbia, and we pray for our neighbors and we meet with our neighbors and we talk with our neighbors and you think you're making ground but then they all start dying. I'm not joking. Within the first three months of living there, three of our immediate neighbors died. I was like, that is terrifying. So I tested the water, things are fine. But it's like, you're probably like me where you have people around you that you want to know Christ. People who you have in your relationships or at your workplaces or in your schools that you feel like the Spirit of God has maybe been calling you to share something with them, to share your story, to be bold with your faith, but you haven't found the courage yet. Why? Because you haven't created that space and that relationship that then fuels that in you where you are then connected in relationship to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and from that relationship you are then empowered to go. That is what the church is for. The gathering of the church is to equip and encourage and edify and grow and disciple one another so that when we go out into the world, to the cars that are passing by on the street, to the homeless population that's right out of here, when we go, we go with the good news of Jesus, empowered by the truth of Jesus and the Spirit working through us to see transformation in them. But it happens by placing yourself at the feet of the cross. Listen, the timer's not on. I don't know how long I'm going now. Um, I'm going to read something over you, and then we're going to close. This right here is a Puritan prayer. 
And it's a prayer that I believe captures the heart of what we're hoping to accomplish, but allows us in a recognition to go first. If you're you're able, would you stand to your feet as I read this over you? Just close your eyes as we pray this prayer together. Oh Lord, I am a shell full of dust, but animated with an invisible, rational soul and made anew by an unseen power of grace. Yet I am no rare object of valuable price, but one that has nothing and is nothing. Although chosen of thee from eternity, given to Christ and born again, I am deeply convinced of the evil and misery of a sinful state, of the vanity of creatures, but also of the sufficiency of Christ. When thou wouldst guide me, I control myself. When thou wouldst be sovereign, I rule myself. When thou wouldst take care of me, I suffice myself. When I should depend on thy providings, I supply myself. When I should submit to thy providence, I follow my will. When I should study, love, honor, trust thee, I serve myself. I fault and correct thy laws to suit myself. And instead of thee, I look to man's approbation and am by nature an idolater. Lord, it is my chief design to bring my heart back to thee. Convince me that I cannot be my own God or make myself happy, nor my own Christ to restore my joy, nor my own spirit to teach, guide, rule me. Help me to see that grace does this by providential affliction. For when my credit is good, thou dost cast me lower. When my riches are my idol, thou dost wing them away. When pleasure is my all, thou dost turn it into bitterness. Take away my roving eye, my curious ear, my greedy appetite, my lustful heart. Show me that none of these things, none of them, can heal a wounded conscience or support a tottering frame or uphold a departing spirit. Then take me to the cross and leave me there. Jesus, our prayer for our lives is that we would truly love you more is that our will would be submitted to your will, is that our lives would reflect the will that you have for us, that we wouldn't get caught up in playing the game of religion no matter the motivation, that we would yearn for the spiritual disciplines in our lives because we know that by those often you meet us and we grow in relationship with you. Build a greater desire in our hearts for the truth of you, Jesus, and a relationship with you. Help us to submit our idols to you. Where we've walked from you and turned against you and turned to everything else for pleasure and fulfillment. And yet you say return to me because I am the way, the only way to which you will achieve and have and hold and be part of and see and experience what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind or heart can imagine. Jesus, you are the only way. You are the better way. And so we repent of all the other things that we've allowed to mold and shape our lives, all the other things we've been discipled by. We repent from our complacency, replace it with urgency with the gospel because we know every day people are dying and going to hell and that is not your will for them. 
You will it that they would know you and love you and in some strange way you invite us in the work you're doing to be part of what's happening in the world and we want that too. Help us where we don't. And so Jesus, we just even now, we submit ourselves to you. Our plans this summer, our conversations in the workplace, how we love our family and serve our kids unto you, how we care about our relatives, what we speak about, how we think about things, how we engage with others. Spirit, walk with us in a way we can be effective with your good news to see more lives come to know and follow you. Help Central Baptist to be a place that is brimming every single Sunday because you're moving here, Spirit, and you care for the people of Victoria, and you're compassionate towards them, and you want to dig them out and bring them into a new standing, and help that happen here in this space, with this church, with these people. The mission is not done yet. And so help it to be effective. Spirit, you've moved in here. You're present with us today. And so we just invite you in a manifest way, like a a real, significant, powerful, felt, experienced, life-transforming way. Be here and transform lives, but also be in the hundreds of circles that this church holds authority in outside of this space. Help the good news of you to sound good, smell good, feel good to people who so desperately need it. And we ultimately know that will only happen because of you. And so lead us to the cross and leave us there. We pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. And it would mean so much to us if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. It's one of the best ways you can help us spread the truth of the gospel online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.